Welcome to our Fixing Healthcare podcast show, Breaking the Rules. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Core, also host of the Populating Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. Our guest today is Dr. David Feinberg. He is the chairman of Oracle Health, having served as the president and CEO of Cerner, a leading electronic healthcare record company and producer of a wide range of medical devices and hospital laboratory testing machines. In these roles, he is focused on unleashing the power of data and delivering tools and technology to improve the patient and caregiver experience. Good morning, David, and welcome to Fixing Healthcare. Thanks, Robbie. So excited to be back. This new 2023 season, number eight, is on leadership and the ability to transform healthcare in ways that simultaneously increase quality, improve access, and lower costs. And you have helped to transform American medicine across your career. As such, I know of no one better than yourself to lead us this season in episode number one. Before we dive into the arc of your career and leadership in disparate institutions like UCLA, Geisinger, Google, Cerner and Oracle, let me ask you a few background questions. First, how do you view leadership and how would you characterize your leadership style. Hey, Robbie. So first of all, I'm not even sure that I'm a leader. I really try to see myself more as a healer. And what I've been trying to do all my career, especially when I was starting out as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, was to make care more understandable for people, to make it more accessible, to really work at making sure that everyone got great care. And all these other amazing opportunities that I've had, um, really, to me, were just ways to try to scale that. So I'm not sure that I'm as much of a leader as I'm a very, very passionate healer. Given that, as we look at the process of change, how do you see a role for leadership to play? Well, for me personally, it's about those values of making sure that I come to work in whatever setting I'm in. And I and I work on this every day, bringing humility, passion, and integrity in trying to make sure that care, and I don't think we've done a good job of this, is centered around patients and families and communities instead of doctors, nurses, and hospitals. And I think all of us caregivers really went into this caregiving field to really make it better for those that we serve. And so to me, that's the biggest driver of change or the lever that I found to be the strongest driver of change is bringing it back to why we're doing this and those that we have the amazing uh, privilege to serve. I wrote an article today in Forbes on creating teams and the importance of teamwork. And as you know from your experience in healthcare, physicians haven't always 
liked teams more than individual pursuits. As a leader, how does a leader create not just teams, but teams and teamwork? Yeah, I think it's so important. And, and actually, my training as a child psychiatrist, when I would take care of a patient, either an inpatient or outpatient, I was a lot of times just the collector of information because it was really important to understand if I'm going to have a good outcome for that patient, to understand what the parents think, what the stepmom thinks, what the school psychologist thinks, the school teacher, inpatient. I was worried about occupational and, and um, recreational therapists. I'm also concerned about what the psychologist thinks. These are definitely complex situations when we're caring for people and getting a team approach, what we would call in psychiatry, a mental health multidisciplinary team was how I was trained. And now actually at Oracle Cerner, one of our strengths is in the behavioral health space in creating that digital team approach to care. And every time that I look at the work we're doing there, the first thing I say is not only is this great for mental health, this is what the rest of medicine needs, is a team approach. So everybody is looking at the patient um, together. When you really look at failures in healthcare, oftentimes it's failures in communication and coordination. So teamwork can act, teams and teamwork can um, really help close those misses around coordination and communication when we're taking care of patients. And then when you have this opportunity to run large systems, I mean, it is pretty simple. I'm only going to be as good as the team that's supporting me and working with me. And I spent a lot of time on team dynamics, on getting the right people on the team and doing my best to serve them so that they bring their whole selves and full amount of energy to work every day. Supporting your perspective, as you know, Johns Hopkins has studied medical era and has seen poor communication as being the leading cause right now of failures in American medicine and patients falling through the cracks. When I use your example of child psychiatry, you have inpatient, you have outpatient, you have the schools, parents, family. It's a lot of individuals. How do you create that without a specific leader? Uh, well, I think leadership for that is actually really important. And if you really, if we're really humble about it, for that patient, typically the leader is the mom, right? It's that alpha mom who's responsible in our world for managing the kids, for managing the parents, for managing the in-laws, for managing oftentimes a spouse. Now, I'm not saying it's exclusively that, but I think oftentimes women are put into that role, not necessarily because they want to, but because often no one else steps up. So that family that's responsible or that family member that's responsible for a patient, if I'm talking about a, let's say a three-year-old with a new diagnosis of autism, how can we, how can we make that caregiver who's really the quarterback of the team effective? And the best way is to first listen, really understand what's going on, and then bring those disparate sources of information together in a way that's um, uh, that somebody can absorb and understand, and then make great decisions to take better care, in this case, of their child. So to me, the teaming that we think about oftentimes in medicine, 
we talk about like the physician as the lead team person. Actually, I think it's the caregiver or, or an individual patient if they're caring for themselves is the person we need to think about that's actually leading the team. And what can we do as a subset of that person to give them the right information, the right access and the ability to make uh, informed decisions? The biggest challenge that I hear about in medicine is how difficult it is for someone not inside the healthcare system to force changes to happen. The parent who wants to get services knows the services that child might need, but simply can't figure out how do I get this five different parts of the care continuum that my child requires in a way that actually is achievable, both for the child and for the family. It just seems to me there still has to be someone to organize that system the same way if you're gonna go into a grocery store, it's organized in a way that you can find the products that you need and theoretically be able to put them into your cart in a reasonably time efficient way. I'm still not quite sure how you see that happening in the, in the mental health system. Yeah, so here's what I see happening. I, I see in in the, the the problem in healthcare, and I'll go beyond mental health care, is we built the system around the wrong person. So currently, having a clinician be the quarterback and pull everything together is great. But fundamentally, I think it's a workaround around a system that was built incorrectly. So let's go to the supermarket. The supermarket is built around me as the shopper. I like produce, I like my certain yogurt, whatever. I know where to find it and it makes sense. It's been built for me. We built healthcare, not for the end consumer. We built healthcare for doctors and hospitals. And yes, in that system, which I think is flawed to start with, yeah, you need somebody to lead it and pull it together, but it really is not, it really is a workaround as opposed to saying, what can we do in families, in neighborhoods, in communities for individuals for them to achieve optimal health? Like if we built the system that way, similar to your supermarket example, I think it would look very different than what happens now as you enter this healthcare system. And as you said, it's totally confusing. You can't find what you're looking for. You can't get it. You don't even know the right questions to answer. And then, God forbid, you do get it. You don't even know how to pay for it because it's so complicated. So, yeah, we need team based on the healthcare system to translate it so it makes sense for individuals. But fundamentally, we need a system that's actually built for individuals so we don't need that translation. David, I love what you're talking about with, you know, apps that give both provider and patient all the data and reminders they need around diet, exercise, when to take their pills, preventative health, et cetera. And this does ultimately, like you said, end up being the patient's responsibility. But as we see with so many people getting gym memberships, you know, for their New Year's resolution, but by March, it's just a gym membership they're paying for, but not going you know, even if they have the best personal trainer or accountability group in the world of people reaching out and saying, you know, hey, you didn't go to the gym this week, or hey, you know, you're not really following the diet plan, they can't physically drag them out of their homes or go to their house and cook for them or things like that. Um, what ideas do you have around getting buy in from patients to really start putting their their health first? Is it some sort of financial discount or kind of where 
is your head at around trying to get these people to to have more buy-in around their own health? Yeah, Jeremy, I think your question is fantastic. I think it's really to say it back to you, how do you engage the unengageable? And I think oftentimes we think, oh, if we just had an app or if we just had um, you know, some band-aid that you put on your skin and it tells you everything, that's the answer. I don't think it is. Like, like I got a smartwatch and I have a, uh, uh, and if you took it away, I'm still gonna exercise because I'm one of those people that every day I work out, right? That's just who I am. Um, the question is, how does that work for folks that for a variety of reasons don't have those, let's say, lifestyle promoting habits? I believe it's not necessarily simply just a tech play because we've seen, you, as you said, with the gym memberships, or you can put a bunch of smartwatches on people that doesn't get people, everyone's got a smartphone today, pretty much. And yet is everyone working, you know, walking 10,000 steps and it, and it does it automatically. Like it's very easy. So to me, it's much more engagement around communities and social settings. It's really clear when you go out to dinner, if the first three people at the table of four say, ah, no, thanks. I don't want any dessert that the odds are you're going to say no dessert. But if the first guy goes, well, let's try the chocolate cake and share it, everyone goes, great, and let's also try the chocolate cookie, right? So we're humans and we're social. And if we can create social situations that are positive toward health, you see great outcomes. Blue zones being an example of that. You know, Communities around the world where they basically say, let's eat local food, let's have a sense of purpose, they're pretty spiritual, alcohol in moderation or no alcohol, um, often no tobacco, right? So those folks live the longest. They have the less, least amount of healthcare costs, but it's a social thing. It's a group of people together that are driving and, 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 and prioritizing those positive behaviors. So then the question becomes, how do you get communities that are more unhealthy, more healthy, and we know those things. It's about building an environment where walkability is available, where there's easy access to affordable, nutritious food, where there's not a lot of gun violence, where there's safety in the streets, where there's often a sense of spirituality. Those are the things that drive healthy behaviors. And none of those things were a new smartwatch, you know, I can now do my pulse ox and I can do my EEG. And, and and great, I'm into that stuff. But that's not, that's not going to drive other people that may not geek out on the things that I'm into. Um, but we can make their environment one where the healthiest thing is the easiest thing to do, not the hardest. So instead of gym memberships, make the community walkable. And you've seen this around the world where you don't need gym memberships. You just need the stairs put in the middle of the building so everyone takes the stairs. So those, to me, are are the ways we're going to get more um, bang for our buck. You know, I really like where you're going with this. And one question I have is to kind of, you know, like you said, reach the unreachable or kind of, you know, change those people who maybe they're like, well, I've I've smoked for 20 years. How the heck am I supposed to stop doing that? Or I'm I'm 400 pounds. How do you expect me to change my lifestyle? What kind of thoughts and strategies do you have around 
making these uh, these lifestyle changes incremental in a way where it's like, you know what, maybe you can have, you know, your big giant soda a few times a week, but maybe make it smaller just so it's the changes realistic enough and gradual enough to really kind of help encourage these people. What kind of thoughts and strategies do you have around that? Yeah, so exactly what you just described. We've seen places that have, you know, decreased the size of soda. And for the first time, I think it was New York City, third graders didn't have an increase in weight. Um, so yes, there are definitely um, kind of big brother kind of stuff. And I say that in quotes that can be effective. We know increasing the price of cigarettes decreases the folks that are using cigarettes, probably decreasing the, you know, advertisement and movie stars smoking was positive and decreasing smoking and like quitting smoking is super hard. Like that stuff is addicting. Like your brain is fired up to keep getting it. And yet we've seen positive effects on that. Then you go into less developed countries and look, they're playing the same game they played with us. So advertising and all of a sudden a bunch of young people are smoking. So there's clearly from a public policy standpoint, ways to drive this. Um, and, you know, we're all paying for it. Like, the, if you look at the kind of stagnation this in wages that the American people have had over the last 30 or 40 years, it's because instead of giving raises, we spent more and more on health care. So as the populace understands, if we can actually drive down our health care costs, businesses will actually have a decrease in their cost of doing business. And that can translate into improved wages. And we know as income rises, health oftentimes rises alongside of it, along with education. So these things are connected. Um, and I think they're going to require um, people together saying, hey, this is now important to us. This is how we want to uh, self-manage ourselves. Let's look early in your career. And I'd like to have you compare and contrast your experiences leading as the CEO at UCLA and the CEO at Geisinger. Here you have one of the world's leading academic institutions, one of the world's leading, I'll call it community. It obviously has a lot of academic pieces to it, but it's focused much more on care delivery than on research and the other parts that a traditional academic facility most highly values. How did you see both leadership in general as in these two uh, bi-coastal entities and how is your leadership different in each of them? Yeah, so first of all, I have great institutional loyalty to both places, uh, both personally what they've done for me and also probably more importantly, what they've done for the world and the communities that they serve. So you know, UCLA did more organ transplants than any hospital in the country. Um, invented Herceptin, the PET scan, uh, the nicotine patch, diagnosed the first case of AIDS. Um, so when you think about impact worldwide of the UCLA's of the world, the academic medical centers, um, pretty amazing. Now, as a leader there running that organization, I'll tell you what I was focused on, and then I'll tell you the dark side, and then I'll do the same for Geisinger. So at, at UCLA, what I was focused on was taking this academic center, world-class reputation, and making it more patient-centered. Really, really proud that we went from 28th percentile to 99th percentile on, um, would you refer us to a friend and rate us on a scale of one to 10? So out of 6,000 hospitals in the United States, 
while I was there with a great team, we became the number one place to go if you wanted uh, care that was compassionate, patient-centered, and family-centered. And by definition, the quality was great because we had some of the best docs in the world and the best nursing staff, et cetera, like a lot of these academic places. That's the good. The bad, um, I wouldn't call it bad, but it, it'll help in the contrast, was I knew each day how many organ transplants we did. I knew if we had a lot of livers done, if we did a heart, if we happened to do some multi-organ transplants, because that complex care not only was good for research and training, it actually was a big driver of our bottom line. So that's my thinking while I'm at UCLA. And then I go to Geisinger where, and you use the word, where at UCLA I was obsessed around patient satisfaction. Geisinger, it was about love of the community. It was a community provider. And by being in love with the community, we created the largest biobank in the world of whole exome sequencing with a return of results. We Today, they're providing over 5 million meals to type 2 diabetics and their families that are food insecure, a program we started when I was there, as well as um, an insurance company. And all of those things were not done because we thought they were innovative. They were done because we had this stable population that needed affordable insurance, that we knew if we could find autosomal dominant disorders, we could prevent illnesses in multi-generations of the family. And if we use food for diabetics, um, it actually was two and a half times better than metformin. And the rest of the family didn't get type two diabetes growing up. And because we were the pair, we made some money. But the contrast to UCLA was instead of counting how many organ transplants we did, I would count how many organs we saved that didn't need transplant. And the differentiator was fee-for-service medicine versus value-based medicine. And when you're in a fee-for-service system, these high-end complex cases that are definitely useful and life-saving drive revenue. When you're in a prepaid system, oftentimes you do your very best to try upstream to prevent things that would cause a high cost of a hot, complex procedure like an organ transplant. So I used to say I was counting organ transplants and I went to a place where I was doing my best to avoid organ transplants. And it just, I thought was an interesting um, contrast. The other would be living in different parts of America. So I could walk in UCLA hospital rooms and if people were thrilled with the care, uh, many of our folks came from the surrounding communities, which were Bel Air, Beverly Hills, Malibu, Santa Monica, and I'd walk out with a multi-million dollar donation. Um, I could do the same at Geisinger, where I'd walk into the rooms and people were thrilled with the care, and our surrounding communities were Shemokin, Bloomsburg, um, Danville, uh, Berwick, and I'd walk out with like a jar of sauerkraut. So, it, and, and I used to say, it doesn't matter where you get cancer, it sucks no matter what. And so, but you definitely saw the different parts of the world, those that have and those that don't have as much, how, how they have to deal with the complexities of a diagnosis like cancer. So yes, there was a big contrast in some ways. And in some ways there was this great equalizer because when you get sick, everyone in the family is upset and wants to know what's gonna happen next. 
Let's dive a level deeper, starting back at UCLA. Uh, I've worked in a lot of academic centers. I've had accountability and titles in several of them. Access, patient convenience, the patient's time. If I had to list a hundred things that are most valued by the people providing care, none of these make the list. How did you shift that? Because you could never have increased the satisfaction levels you're describing without having addressed this inconvenience of gaining access, this difficulty of getting timely care. Yeah, so we created same-day appointments for everything. So um, <laughs> that was one of the pieces. And, you know, as you know, um, this is a cultural revolution at an academic medical center because, and I say a little bit tongue in cheek, but you know, if I'm a orthopedic surgeon that just focuses on the third knuckle of the left hand and I have research grants and teaching, I just want the right patients and I only see them every third Thursday, you know, in odd months or something like that, right? The crazy, crazy scheduling that makes sense with a tripartite mission of education, research, and clinical care. But for somebody with a bad finger, it makes no sense, right? So we went to same-day access, um, and it actually turned out to be pretty much a win-win. For primary care, it's actually pretty easy. You just got to book some open appointments, block some open appointments so folks can get in. But what about for that complicated neurosurgeon, right, who just does skull-based surgeries? or that neurosurgeon who just wants to see aneurysms. So the way we did it um, was basically talk to the neurosurgeons and say to them, listen, really what you want is a very, very high conversion rate of how many patients you see in clinic turn out to be the kind of patients that you wanna treat for your research, for your clinical expertise, and for your teaching. And we think we can help you, but you gotta help us do it. So you know how you're on call every 12th night in neurosurgery or every fourth night or whatever it is. And when you're on call as a neurosurgeon, anything that comes in, you work with the residents and you figure out what to do. And then the next day you're, you're back to your you know aneurysm neurosurgery. Okay, so what we really want you to do is be on call also in the day, once a month or once every few weeks. And what's gonna come in is general neurosurgery or anything that comes in because we're gonna answer the phone Hi, this is UCLA, would you like to see us? Somebody has something bad, we're gonna say, no problem, you can see a neurosurgeon today or within 24 hours or something like that. Now, what happens is that neurosurgeon sees that patient and says, hey, this is what I think it is. I'm not the specialist for it. Actually, the specialist is my colleague and he will see you next Wednesday. Now, what's happened? The patient is thrilled because they got in and the anxiety and the worry is down. They've now been appropriately triaged to the colleague next Thursday. That colleague's schedule now starts to become ideal because all the other colleagues know who that person needs to see and vice versa. So it was basically creating call during the day to make triage better. And you just did your one day of general neurosurgery or orthopedics or cardiology. But then you actually started showing folks what their regular schedule looked like. And lo and behold, their conversion of the right people in their schedule got dramatically better. So that's actually how we got the specialists engaged. I mean, it's kind of inside baseball, but I think for this audience, it's pretty uh, 
uh, would probably get what I'm talking about. Um, but it was also, you know, people in uniforms and scripting and asking permission before you do anything. But the most powerful thing, I think, in this, what I would say was a cultural revolution, was using stories to really change behavior in bringing the story of the wins and also the losses that we had in front of everyone and saying, hey, we can do better than this. And the voice from the patient and the family elevating that actually helped drive most of the change. I'm currently writing a series for Forbes on leadership and talking and defining it in the 21st century as the ability to improve quality, to increase access and to lower cost. Do you think that this triple outcome achieving all three simultaneously is possible in an academic medical center? And if so, how would you lead it? So I'm not sure it's possible. To me, it feels like a balloon. And if you squeeze two parts, the other part pops up. So I keep thinking, what else in the world has high quality, um, is completely accessible, and doesn't cost a lot of money? And there's not a lot of examples. Like even in the US, we could say not everyone gets clean water and not everyone gets good education. And you know, there's really, really fancy restaurants, but they got great food and it's high quality, but it costs a lot of money. So where do you get all three? And the one that I came up with, because everyone says healthcare should be that, which would be great. I just don't know if it's possible. The one that I came up with was the fire department. Like everybody gets the fire, department to show up. It doesn't seem like it costs a lot of money. It doesn't feel like my taxes are all going to the fire department. And it's really high quality. They're great. The firefighters are great. They come in and they save my house and save people. Like it's fantastic. So that was always my example. Then I saw these fires in Malibu and people were hiring private firefighters. And I'm like, oh no, that's my one example of the one thing that everybody gets that's accessible, high quality, and low cost. Um, so I don't know that we can do it in healthcare. You know, Cerner, Oracle Cerner is the largest EHR company in the world. So we have much larger market share than anybody else if you take a global perspective. That's been an amazing opportunity for me to visit the NHS. And I'm going in a couple months to Australia and I've been to Sweden and uh, we do really well in the Middle East and Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Um, and so, and Europe, and so as I've seen outside US health systems, it's pretty amazing that there's, if I talk about NHS, it's almost a religion, right? These folks believe in the system. I think the quality is fantastic, um, but the wait times are long. Um, and they would even say, even though it's way less than our system, it's starting to get too expensive. So I haven't yet seen where you get all of that. I think the best way, if I were leading in the US to get high quality, accessible, um, affordable healthcare in the US is to move as far upstream as possible to decrease the demand for what I would call lifestyle disorders. So if you think about it, if we all ate right, assuming we had access to healthy food, if we all had a self, self sense of purpose, if we were living in neighborhoods that were safe, if we had really good safety around firearms, um, if we really attacked issues around 
um, parent training. So kids grew up in safe, uh, loving families. We would decrease probably 50% of the demand on the healthcare system. Well, now we got enough money to make sure everybody, if they did get sick or injured, um, would have access to affordable, high quality, um, accessible healthcare. The problem is by not addressing those things, we just keep driving these, um, what I would say, preventable health systems and then, I mean, health disorders and then treating them further down line or downstream. And no, I don't think we can afford it. I, I think we've proven that. I mean, you look at our health outcomes, they're abysmal. You look at what we're spending, um, it's insane. It's literally 2X times anybody else. And the quality is not even good, right? And so um, I, I don't think we can do it within the system. I think we have to do it by having the aperture much broader and going way, way upstream and thinking about communities and individuals and families and how to keep them healthy and out of the health system or, or have a much lighter touch because their severity of illness is less than the way we should, the, the way you folks did it at Kaiser. I mean, that kind of approach needs to be scaled uh, for us to be able to say it's affordable, uh, accessible, and high quality. So that takes us to the second half of your career, because I, for the first time and all the time I've known you, David, we may disagree on something, and that is that I believe that it is a, it is accomplishable, but it's going to require 21st century technology to do it, because there is not enough time for physicians to spend as much energy as required to help people with lifestyle and wellness and the opportunities to avoid chronic disease. And we can spend a lot of time talking about all the specifics, but I believe much of that could be done through technology. So let's move to your Google experience. What was the culture like there? What was leadership like there? And how would you get a company like Google to focus on creating the technology that would accomplish the pieces that would allow us to improve health by avoiding heart attacks and strokes, improve access by making it available in someone's home through a, an Alexa type dev device, 24 by seven, and as a consequence of better health, lower the cost of providing medical care. Yeah, so I was nervous about going to Google. You know, I'd come from the not-for-profit world and it felt to me like the tech companies, um, while well-intentioned about healthcare, uh, oftentimes thought those of us in healthcare were kind of stupid. And if we just use this app, everything would get better because look what we've done for retail and travel and finance and you guys in healthcare don't know what you're doing. Um, so I, I was pretty nervous about going there and had a lot of discussions about that. When I got there, uh, not only was I surrounded by the smartest people I've ever, ever, ever encountered, um, the mission driven uh, was bigger than any of the not-for-profits I worked on. The Google specifically um, was laser focused on health inequities and getting care and being helpful to everyone. And when they mean everyone, they mean like literally everyone around the world. So my fears went away. Um, then it was about um, really the culture at Google is a lot of flowers are blooming. 
And in healthcare, I think to have an effect, you got to be um, a little more disciplined. So we went through a process of really deciding which areas we wanted to get focused on. And it came down to, I would say, a couple. And then COVID happened. And that accelerated. I think we had made the right choices and it accelerated those, those two areas. So one was using Google technology that already existed um, to make a couple bets in healthcare and, and particularly around organizing information and making it accessible and understandable, right? Google's the best in the world at that. So can we take a person, multiple EHR records, put a Google search bar on top, you type sepsis and everything comes up about that patient or diabetes and you can misspell it because Google understands that. And even a fax comes in from an OCR that a person had a diabetic retinopathy scan, right? So that was great. And in a subset of that Google brilliant technology was around computer vision. So using computer vision to improve diagnostic accuracy of anything that has a picture, skin, mammography, diabetic retinopathy, colonoscopy, um, et cetera. And those areas continue, because I keep touch, in touch with my Google folks, continue to develop. And I think can have a really, really positive effect on healthcare. But COVID happened. And when COVID happened, it was really clear that everyone now was only searching about healthcare stuff. They were searching about remember flattening the curve and where to get a vaccine and um, uh, uh, death rates and you know should we social distance? When that happened, the big Google um, really leaned on my team, and what we decided was the best way for us to be helpful was to get as much authoritative information out as possible. That's um, customized both for a local, regional, global way. So I don't know what the count is now because I left about a year and a half ago, but at the time, the last time I was at Google, we had had 50 billion impressions of our COVID information page on YouTube, 50 billion. So what I learned was how with scale and good information, you could really, really have an impact on health around the world. If you looked at Google's trust scores during COVID, they went up globally. And I believe, this is me talking now, not Google. The reason that they increased globally was because people were searching for health information almost primarily. And we got good information out. We got good information out by partnering with trusted sources and making that information um, searchable, findable, understandable. Um, so back to my kind of early days of it's about getting information to patients in a way they could understand, I, I was able to be part of a team that was doing that for the world. And so that to me was really spectacular to see um, how these large platforms can have such a positive effect on people's health. And, you know, we were under the microscope, obviously, with the pandemic. I'd like to shift back 
to the conversation we just had and apply it into the Google context. Think about medications. I mean, people who are older with chronic diseases take seven, eight different pills. They take them different times of the day. One of the leading causes of the reason for rehospitalization is failure to appropriately take the medications as prescribed. It seems to me for Google to create a product that would simply tell people when they're supposed to take their medications and remind them to do so, whether they did it directly through a Google current um, tool or whether they developed another one. And yet, for the most part, it doesn't exist in the United States. There are a couple of small companies working on it. Why wouldn't Google lead in that area with the remarkable impact it could have on the health outcomes of individuals? So first of all, I think um, from my vantage point, healthcare is people caring for people. And it's based on trust. And as that trust is established, you have a greater chance of improving people's lives. Tech is an amazing enabler. So with caregivers and with trust, um, you can do those things. And just as I was leaving, Google was working on pretty much what you're talking about, a little more sophisticated, not only around medications, but around helping coordinate appointments, et cetera. Um, and when you look at healthcare, it actually starts at Google. When anyone gets a new diagnosis or a new medication or your family calls and says, hey, I think I have this or you have symptoms, people go to Google. I mean, they go to Google like 100x times greater than anything else. And doctors say, oh, don't Google things like, you know, Google doesn't replace my medical license. And then you look at YouTube, doctors, before they take out your parathyroid or put in a chest tube, are going to YouTube. So the docs are going there too. So as we understood that healthcare was really starting on these two incredible platforms, um, what we wanted was to get authoritative information out so that we established the trust. Because without the trust, we could come up with a snazzy app like you described, but if people don't trust it, you don't, if it's not useful, if it's not helpful, and they don't believe that they're getting more from it than you are getting from it, you don't get the uptake. So I really learned about user experience and how, I mean, think about it. When you go to Google Maps or Waze, which are both Google Alphabet companies, you're giving all kinds of personal information. I'm here, I'm going to this restaurant, I'm leaving now, and I'm gonna be over there, right? And that's like a lot of information, but what do I get in return? I get all kinds of value. Take this street, it'll go faster. Turn in 20 feet. Um, you're almost there. Do you want to share your ETA? Well, you could do the exact same story with a breast cancer diagnosis. I got breast cancer. It's a journey. I got to get someone. The only way, though, individuals are going to say to the Googles of the world, here's my information. They've got to trust you, and you have to give them more value back than they're getting each turn, each step of the way. So to me, that was foundational around the trust and being uh, the place that people feel comfortable coming to. Then yes, you could start adding on those very, very helpful features, but we were laser focused on authoritative information and building trust. No, I, I understand what you did and why you did it. We were in the middle of a pandemic. 
but I'm still looking to understand some of these functions that it's not hard for a user to decide to trust pretty quickly because it works three days in a row. I mean, my alarm yeah. on my phone wakes me up. I don't worry that it's not going to ring. I am confident that it's going to do so because it's done so often enough, as you say, with Waze. I trust it to tell me where to turn. I trust it more than my own judgment uh, to decide what's the fastest route to go. And some of these functions, that's why I use the medication. Yeah. It's just a question of, you know, it's three times a day and here are eight hours apart and I can put it into the uh, into the device and it can ring appropriately. But let's move on to a more complex okay. area. The one that's actually very interesting to me. And it's almost this nexus between Cerner and Oracle and Google and all the things that you've done. Uh, increasingly, we have home monitoring devices. During COVID, we certainly had uh, O2 monitors. We certainly have blood pressure cuffs. We have scales for patients who might have uh, uh, heart failure, and we need to know whether they put on too many pounds. Uh, glucose monitors are here, and better ones are coming sooner. We can go down the whole long list, and I'm going to assume that at some point, Cerner would like this information put into the EHR, um, and Oracle would like to have this information inside the uh, overriding set of data information on patients. But there's a next level, which is really, to me, empowering the patients, which is saying, Using all the information you have, we can help sort it for you, arrange it for you, put it into the context of your doctor's advice, and let you know every day, continuously, how you're doing against the plan that you and your doctor came up with, rather than waiting three months or four months for your next scheduled visit. This, to me, would be a remarkable leap forward. I understand a lot of the challenges of doing it, but is this something that you think you could lead at Cerner and Oracle, or is this yeah. something you think is just too far, too fantasized to be able to be accomplished? Yeah, I, I think it's exactly where we're going. You just described it, but let me tell you how we think is the best way to get there. So first of all, before we can get that plan from your doctor to you, we got to help the doctor figure out the plan because there's so many multiple records and understanding the data. These patients today have become really data problems. So here's what we're trying to do. And we get to what you described. So to start with, we can create a, pl a cloud platform that pulls together really important information for providers and health systems. And that information, it could be EHR agnostic, but obviously, Oracle Health now has an EHR. So connecting, let's say in this example, the Cerner EHR to ERP, to supply chain, to human capital management, cloud enable it, connected to claims processing, connected to clinical trial platforms. So here's the use case. We say to big systems like Kaiser, you're spending a bunch of money on all this stuff. We can do it for less which is great because health systems around the US are struggling right now. But better than that, it's an intelligent system. So when the nurse gives chemo for the very first time, we actually know that from the human capital management system and do just-in-time training in the EHR. Or when you operate, and we know that from the EHR, that then drives your supply chain because we see what um, supplies you used. So this intelligent 
system that's front office and back office that pulls together disparate systems to allow folks, in this case, providers to make intelligent decisions. But, or I should say, and it's open and connected, right? We're not gonna build everything. We want it open and connected. So those smart innovators on the consumer side or those smart innovators on the biotech side have an ability in a secure way to connect to the platform to allow those particular applications to be there. The beauty of it is if we do it this way, now what your doc wants you to do goes back into the same data, but the view is a consumer view. And your doc doesn't really want to know how many steps you took today. They want to know, are you exercising? And it has to be in their normal workflow. So by having it connected to the EHR and the other systems, we think we can give folks, and that's in the formal side of care or even the informal, the caregivers side of care, the right information at the right time in a way they can make actionable decisions to do exactly what you described. So that's the plan. We think we can do it at an individual level, at a regional level. And Larry Ellison has been very bold saying, um, we think we can do this at a country level. Um, so we're really talking about an open and connected health platform that pulls disparate, safe and secure, that pulls disparate types of information together to give those kinds of views, but the ownership really belongs to the individual. And the individual can light that system up and allow folks to interact in, in, in the right way so that we can tell you when it's time to take your medicine, or if you're sharing this with your um, son or daughter or spouse, you can share that information and it's all yours and it's all pulled together from multiple sources. That That's the big vision that we're going for. What do you think is the government or the, you know, the health system or whatever kind of their role in a lot of the education piece around these things, you know, I think a lot of people just don't know. They go to the store and they're like, oh, well, this is healthy when actually it's not. But the advertising on the box of the product makes it looks like it is. You know, I don't think a lot of people realize, you know, how hard it is to actually find, OK, this isn't processed food. This is actually good for me. You know, what do you think the, the government role in that kind of, you know, either policing it more or educational piece or kind of how do, how do you feel that all plays in together? Because I think a lot of people just don't know what's healthy for them when it comes to food. Yeah, not only do they not know what's healthy, um, it's more expensive, it's more perishable, and it's harder to prepare. So if you're a single mom who's taking care of um, and working two jobs and you go to McDonald's, um, you're basically saying no to your kids all day long because you don't have a lot of money. Um, you don't have a lot of time. So being able to say yes to McDonald's and they get a toy and it's affordable, it's not, I don't think that that mom understands that food's not healthy. They just want to be able to say yes once in the day to their kid. And they also have not other options. They don't have time to go get blueberries and you get them home and a few of them have mold and throw them out and they cost six bucks and that's not going to feed a family of four. And they also, because they have lack of time, don't have time to prepare so we really have to think about how we make it easier for that mom, who I do think knows the difference between healthy and unhealthy food, to be able to say yes to her kid, that it's convenient, that it's fulfilling, 
and uh, can fit in their lifestyle. Because driving through the McDonald's drive-through is actually really, really easy. Happy meal, kid gets it, they're happy, they got a toy, you fed them, they got a present, hey, I made it through the day. How do we create that happy meal that's nutritious? How do we create it so it's easy to do the right thing? Um, and you're right, there is definitely some education. We were giving out the food in central Pennsylvania, you know, a kid kept saying he didn't like oranges. And then we saw how he's eating them. He's eating them like apples. So when you bite into an orange and eat the peel as part of the orange, yeah, it is pretty nasty. So, hey, we got to teach you how to peel the orange. That same kid started making smoothies. He was about nine or eight and would be upset when he came in and we were out of strawberries and we had to replace them with blueberries or something. So, yeah, it's doable. And he loved smoothies by the end. But in the beginning, didn't really know how to peel an orange. So some of the basics are absolutely crucial, but you also have to make it really, really easy and convenient. Hey, that's what these other successful commercial industries have done. And look how well they've done. People are busy. They're strapped for time um, and they don't have a lot of money. So how do we make healthy, nutritious food the simplest thing to do? One last question. If you were to be advising the future leaders, the ones who are in medical school and in residency early in their career, who want to become leaders of healthcare, who believe it can be transformed, who believe that patients can take the responsibility for their health, who believe that technology can be a solution, what advice would you give them? Never, never, ever forget to put the patient and the family and the community at the center. And you're in a system right now that hasn't done that. So you're going to have to be at times edgy and um, a little disruptive. Um, but I don't think you can lead. I don't think we will lead our way out of this without new leaders coming in and saying, this doesn't make sense. Um, this is not patient-centered. Thank you so much, David. It's been amazingly educational, and I can't wait to see all the things that you're about to accomplish at the Cerner Oracle organization and changing the healthcare, not just the United States, but of the entire world. Thank you, Robbie. It's always fun to hang out with you. Well, David, thank you so much. That's, you're an amazing, amazing guest. We could have you back every single week because your insights are just radical, so well thought through and just absolutely fabulous. So thanks for being with us today. You guys are the greatest. Have a great holiday. Robbie, what do you think about what Dr. Feinberg said? Jeremy, I am always inspired hearing David speak. I love his opening comments about being a healer and putting the patient first. To me, that's just medicine from a rote process to a personalized endeavor. And you can hear that commitment in David's words. He focuses not just on reversing the ravages of disease, but also prevention, social determinants of health, and patient empowerment. And regardless of whether he's been leading an academic institution like UCLA, an integrated healthcare system like Geisinger, the world's leader in search, Google, or Cerner, an electronic healthcare record giant, he stayed true to his principles and beliefs. I look forward to seeing all he can accomplish at Oracle. As you know, I'm a big believer in technology and the role it can play at increasing patient engagement. 
why are we surprised that when we approach patient care by telling patients what to do, rather than educating and empowering them, it's difficult to make progress in prevention, lifestyle medicine, and wellness. But when we shift that paradigm, as David suggests, the opportunities and likelihood of success expand. Through a range of products, that is what Oracle has tried to do in the business world. I'm looking forward to watching their efforts in the healthcare space. I know it will be exciting and potentially transformative. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at FixingHealthCarePodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at FixingHC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's Breaking the Rules with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.